Welcome to Still Unbelievable, a podcast by Reason Press, where we examine religious claims, especially those made by Christians, and we regularly respond to items that are featured on the podcast, Unbelievable. We embrace dialogue, but as sceptical former believers, we will also criticise unfounded claims and unsupported beliefs. always had this sense of being overwhelmed by the beauty of nature, even though I was only about eight or nine years old. And so science came to me very naturally indeed. And religion, I have to say, was something I did not take seriously at all. And then gradually began to realize there was more to things than that. Really became an atheist when I was about 16 years old. What I mean by that is I decided that I did not believe. But when you're 16 years old, life is extremely simple. You know, when I was young, I believed the tooth fairy and then gave up on that very quickly because I grew up. When I was 18, I shifted from atheism to Christianity. But the important point to make here is that science changes its mind over time. So science is provisional. It's able to correct itself. For me, science is very, very good in its own domain. Science is very, very good at saying, here are the kind of things that people find meaningful but doesn't tell us what the meaning of life is. Ceasing to believe in God does not somehow mean suffering goes away. There are things that we can do that make this a better place, and that is what God is calling us to do. Within this world, here is something you could be doing. Here is how you can understand the meaning of your life and what you are doing to make this world a better place. Science doesn't give you that, but Christianity does. So I think we need need to be aware there's much more faith involved in science than actually is is widely conceded. This Christian way of thinking about things actually does make an awful lot of sense of our world and us. So if you like, what I'm saying is it, it is not about running away from engaging with deep questions. It's about realizing that Christianity gives you this way of thinking, which is so, so powerful and exciting, which actually is one of the reasons why I left atheism behind faith in an ordered reality and an ordering God actually is integral to the scientific enterprise. If you're a scientist, you have to presuppose that. If you're a Christian, that's where you start from. Actually, one of the things that I discovered from moving atheism to Christianity is that I did not come to faith. Actually, I abandoned one faith for a different faith. If you believe in God, then the kind of things we observe in the world around experience within us actually make an awful lot of sense. Very often you find yourself embracing an idea for reasons that are not purely intellectual. The voice you have just heard was Alistair McGrath and the sound bites are from the first session of the 2022 Christian Evidence Society sessions. Hello this is Matthew and the next two episodes of Still Unbelievable will cover this series of four sessions looking at the interface between Christianity and science. In 2021, there were five sessions which we covered in episodes 53, 54 and 55 of Still Unbelievable. Videos of the 2021 sessions are available online. Link in the show notes if you wish to see the source material that we covered in those episodes.
The 2022 session started with Alistair McGrath on the subject of Should we always follow the science? Alistair has a reputation among Christians for being a Christian who converted as an adult with a scientific background. Yet listening to him say that he became atheist at 16 and then Christian at 18 shatters that narrative because it doesn't fit into how Christians like to portray him namely as an adult scientist who converted to Christianity after being convinced there is a God by his science. What struck us most about this first session is the clear demarcation between what science addresses and what Christianity addresses, which doesn't bode well for a religion that continues to insist that it is harmonious with science. We weren't impressed and our discussion on Alistair's presentation takes only 20 minutes. The majority of this episode covers the second session, featuring Dr Mary Ellen Foster on the subject, Will a Robot Steal My Job? We found this discussion far more interesting and stimulating, and it shows in our post-show dialogue. Links to the videos of both sessions are in the show notes, along with further details of each participant. There are also links to the Skydive Phil video, Gary Marcus on AI and the Turing test, all of which come up in our conversation. Enjoy the show as we jump right into the dissection of Alistair McGrath. One of the questions I asked, and Darren, you had a very similar question, where faith and science give us different answers. What should we do? That question phrased that exact way wasn't answered. They sort of hinted around at this, and I never understood what the answer should be from the Christian perspective. What do you do when you pray? And the answer to your prayer is you don't think that you should move your family from one state to another. But all of the evidence you have says it's a better school district, you've got better pay. How do you resolve that conflict? And Darren, your question, I think, was asked. Science says the Earth isn't 6,000 years old. It's much older. And Genesis disagrees. So what do we do? And it felt like a continuous die about what to do when science and faith overlap and you get different results. Well, I think you did sort of give an answer to that because his thing especially when he answered that question of mine, it seems like he was saying, well, if it's about the physical universe, we follow the science. Somewhere in there, one of them said that, mentioned specifically that Bible isn't meant to be a scientific textbook. So it's not supposed to tell us how the world works, even though it says that there's a God, and I'm assuming God's part of the world and how it works. So, I mean, like they think that the Bible is just there to give us our meaning for life. And then the scientists, they are just to tell us how things work. So, Matthew, what do you think, man? If, if, if science is supposed to tell us how the world works and science doesn't produce any sort of observation, testable hypothesis, any sort of repeatable experiment, if we don't have any of that, what does that say about the, about the Bible and, uh, and the intersection? of science. Well, I don't think it can give us much confidence in a lot of the factual claims that it makes would be the first way to go about it. 
there's something wrong here, isn't there? So if the Bible isn't supposed to tell us, if it's not a science book, and as a Christian, I'd have agreed, uh, at least in part, that it wasn't a science book, though, Matthew, you and I both held that Genesis was literally true, so in some sense we thought it was. But if, if the Bible isn't a science book, and you can't trust it at the level of it speaks facts about the world, then to what extent can its claims be trusted at all? That's where the yeah. whole faith conversation comes in, isn't it? That'd be really okay with God lying to them. And that just seems odd to me because they were talking specifically about evolution and uh, Genesis stories. And obviously evolution says that no Adam and Eve were not created as individual people. And But they seem to be okay with the Bible saying that that's the case because the overall message is that God created everything. But I don't know if someone lied to me about how it happened. I'm not sure I would be okay with that, but they seem to be really okay with that. I don't, I just don't get that. And if it's not a lie, if it's hyperbolic, if it's parable, if it's just sort of simile and metaphor, well, okay, fine. But to what extent am I supposed to trust that when I'm making decisions? And more importantly, how am I supposed to trust it? And I asked that question. It didn't get followed up. How do I trust faith? Right? When science doesn't, in fact, I asked the question, when science doesn't give us an answer, can faith always be trusted to give us an answer? There's a good analogy to be made here about an unsatisfactory answer. And over the last 18 months, 24 months even, we've had many, many vocal people who don't trust the science behind the vaccine. They're going insane. They're going crazy. They're making huge protests. Uh, they're creating conspiracies online. They're, there's protests about avoiding lockdown. There's protests about avoiding vaccines because people, for whatever reason, don't trust the science behind the vaccine. Yet, the same people do not come up with the same reaction when it comes to not trusting statements that are given in the Bible, like Darren just said. Why are we not up in arms about those opening chapters of Genesis being factually incorrect? Why instead are people going through hoops to try to find the nuance, to find the different meaning of what is actually behind there? Why are they not apoplectic over the factual statements which are actually incorrect when those very same people do exactly that over science statements which they don't accept. I don't have a good answer here. No, I, I, I don't either. It seems to me, I think the three of us are in, <laughs> in the minority here, it seems to me that the, the great benefit of science, and, and I'm not lumping all science together. I'm actually talking about the scientific method here. Let me be careful to say that what follows is about the scientific method and not about scientific conclusions, any particular scientific conclusion at the moment. Science in regard to COVID-19, so in this case, we're talking about medical science, we're talking about biology and population statistics and rate of spread of organisms and, and organism growth rate. We're talking about all of those kinds of things. What science has made a claim about here is something that is repeatable. It's something that can be observed and it's something that's repeatable. And where do we see it repeated? Well, we saw it repeated on the county level in every state. We saw it repeated on the state level in every country to the extent that we had data. That always seems to me to be a big benefit 
of the scientific method, not just for biological science. When you say, well, I don't think there's a COVID-19 pandemic or whatever, it seems to me that there's a, a kind of epistemology at work here that I don't understand at its heart because I am willing to say where there is repeatable evidence, even if I held the opposite position, where something is repeatable, I'm willing to say, well, I was just wrong on it. And that seems to me to be the, the great benefit of the scientific method. Call it rationality, call it reasoning, call it logic, call it the scientific method. The great benefit is that we don't actually have to do a lot of trusting of our own gut, right? We can just watch the demonstrations mm -hmm. and draw conclusions that way. Yep. This is what one of the most powerful things about science is. So there were a few things that came up during this thing. And um, actually, there's one thing I'd like to say is I thought the the guy hosting this uh, session tonight, who's actually the same guy who hosted last year's Christian Evidence Society sessions, I thought he asked some really good questions of Alistair. And he asked some some quite tough ones as well. He didn't softball him at all throughout it. I thought he asked some pointed questions. Could be that these were prepped in advance. To be honest, I don't really mind. I thought the questions were, were quite good and they were questions that I would want to ask. During the early part where Alistair was talking about science and actually said the phrase science corrects itself with it, which is something that all three of us would applaud. And he talked about you know, the process of, of science, the testing correcting itself but at no point did he actually give a similar thing about faith the concept of faith wasn't elevated to a self-correcting thing and in the while he was also talking about faith and science correcting himself Alistair also said one of my pet hates which was science changes its mind all the time it changes its mind over time you know thing new things come to light and it changes its mind well you have to have that if you're going to have something that's self-correcting because your first thought is usually going to have lots of things wrong with it. Faith is older than science. It's going to have lots of things wrong with it. Faith hasn't changed the way science has. Therefore, it's still going to have lots of things wrong with it. And that issue didn't come up. All we had was holding the two things together and making them complementary. But we didn't have this thing about how science corrects and faith doesn't. Yeah, what I took from that was that they already knew that faith was not a reliable means to know anything, so they had to try to bring science down to the same level. Yeah. I think that's when they, uh, they said, oh, well, science changes its mind all the time. They only do that because they want to make science seem unreliable. So I think that was sort of what their the idea was behind doing that. Yes, it, it felt a bit weaselly, really, didn't it, that bit? Yeah. There's a lot of like little things that I highlighted in my notes when he said that uh, we can have meaning in our, our lives because we were created by God and God loves us, as if just because God loving us is what gives us meaning in our lives. Yeah. Um, uh, whenever uh, he's talking about when he was talking about evolution and uh, it uh, contradicting the Bible, it was more it was more victim blaming with just the you're not just reading the Bible correctly. You have to read the Bible correctly because otherwise it'll comport with the science. Overall, it gave the, the sense that he wasn't really, as, much, as great as the questions were, he wasn't really engaging the questions. And unfortunately, the, uh, the host didn't actually follow up on his answers when he did a dodge on the question. That was kind of frustrating. 
Yes, I got that. While there were some really good, strong and pointed questions, when the, I found quite often the answers were lacking and uh, unsatisfactory and I was wanting for a follow-up and it just moved on to the next question. But you mentioned about the, um, the suffering thing. I thought the suffering bit was really quite poor as well. You said victim blaming. Yeah, I had a slightly different thought, but it's not too far away, was when you were talked about the suffering and it's standard Christian trope, you know, in order to fix our suffering god came down and suffered with us so that he could understand and feel our suffering with us yeah that doesn't take suffering away that isn't a solution to suffering you know? the solution to suffering is to take it away you know no child when it's howling in pain feels comforted when their parent breaks their own leg and lies in pain next to them that doesn't help a single child ever in this world it's not even just a matter of fixing the suffering Christians believe that God created the world, so he created the suffering in the first place. Yep. So, I mean, it's understandable why he doesn't take it away, because he went to all the trouble of creating it. The question is, is, why would he create suffering in the first place? And of course, they say that it's human fault. Apparently, cancer and natural disasters and broken legs and nerve endings that, uh, uh, that signal pain to our brains, that's all human fault. Yeah, I know, which takes us straight back to Genesis, which blames uh, the humans on the suffering and says it's because of humans making a, a choice to have the suffering. But we we also heard that that isn't a, a science textbook narrative. So yeah, how can you believe it to be true and not true? The more I look into the sort of these apologetic shows, the more I wonder how they're affected. I just don't get it. I agree. They're certainly not affected on me. The more I listen to them as well, the, the more I think that, you know, I bought this for so many years. What is it that it's got that kept me? And now I'm out and I listen to them. I don't have an answer to that question. I can't explain why I was there, why they kept me there. Maybe it wasn't apologetics talks that kept me. Maybe it was something else that kept me because... I listen to them. I, th I do. I keep asking myself this question. Why did I stay so long? What was it about these arguments, about these phrases, uh, about these things that people say? What is it about them that kept me in Christianity, that made me go away thinking, oh, I feel really good after hearing that talk? Because I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't see why I was there. Yeah, I wonder if it has something to do with confirmation bias. It must do. Uh, because I know that our brains are structured to highlight confirmation bias. And I wonder if it is just a lot more powerful than I thought it was. I, I've always thought it's just sort of a byproduct that we have to sort of, you know, not very strong unless you're paying attention and you can see it. But I'm wondering if it's a lot stronger. I'm going to say you're probably right. It certainly would make a lot of sense and help explain my own personal experience. I'm fairly sure that others would feel the same. Yeah. To move on from the questions, there seem to be a lot of listener questions from, from atheists. I think one or either you or Andrew, I can't remember which one it was, asked a question about what's the audience like this time compared to last time. Obviously, we have no idea what the audience was, but I have this kind of gut feel that maybe the audience was smaller than it was a year ago. You might be right, because they asked, they put in a lot of my questions, and some of them, quite frankly, weren't that great. I don't know, if they just had a really small audience, that would probably explain it. Between the two of you, you and Andrew, I think, asked 10, 12 questions, and a significant chunk of those questions got asked. 
Um, hey, I do know that there was actually a clash for tonight's meeting. I think Premier Unbelievable had uh, an Ask Me Anything live session with another Christian apologist, which clashed for the uh, same, same time slot, which uh, is unfortunate. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that had an effect as well. Premier Christianity knew about their session tonight. So I don't know why they put something up to clash. Maybe it was just bad planning or maybe it was the only slot. So I'm going to, for the moment, think that maybe it was that and that next week we're going to see more people. Yeah, because I think they asked how many questions, like 10 questions at the end, and I think six or seven of us was between the three of us. Questions yeah, well, it was just us. between the two of you because I only asked two and neither of those got answered. So it was literally the two of you who asked more than 50% of the questions at the end. Uh, next week, has something to do with will robot take our jobs? The answer is yes, uh, at least for programmers. I'll, I'll let Darren give the answer here. Um, yep, that's what it is. I'm intrigued to see how AI meets the concept of religion and evidence, but it, it will be interesting. I'm looking forward. Uh, Somebody needs to ask the question about AI having religion. Yeah, yeah you're the eternal optimist. Um, <laughs> You know, I've been through enough of these. I've really sort of set the bar pretty low on what it's going to be like. So it'll be interesting to see if I'm pleasantly surprised or not. I don't know the lady who's doing it next week, so I'm going to have to look her up. Alison McGrath is obviously somebody who's much more familiar to me and to most of the Christians uh, around to pay attention to this kind of thing. I, I'll have to look up the lady who's doing next week's talk. We shall find out next week. But look, thank you guys. Thank you to everyone that is listening to Still Unbelievable. And uh, one thing before I go, Scott Adfield made a video a few weeks ago. That video had to do with William Lane Craig's Kalam cosmological argument. Scott Adfield is the reporter for the Royal Astronomical Society. He has access to the greatest minds in cosmology and astronomy of our time. And some people are troubled by the KCA, the Kalam cosmological argument. The argument in short is everything that began to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Christians make a lot out of this particular argument and William Lane Craig has made it famous. Bill wrote us and said, hey, will you just let people know this is there? We talk about the KCA from time to time all three of us have. So folks, if you wanna understand more about our universe, the answer is not to listen to William Lane Craig. It's probably to listen to the best minds of our time and what they know about the formation of the universe. Just go watch the video. I promise you will be glad you did. Thank you for letting me join, guys. I'll talk to you next time. Have a good one. Thanks. Thank you for your time, Darren. Always a pleasure. And we'll chat again in a week. I am looking forward to it. a robot has to have a physical body. So people ask questions like, is a self-driving car a robot? Some people would say yes, some people would say no. Autonomous decision-making is also important for something to be a robot. Is an airplane being flown by an autopilot a robot? Some people say yes, some people say no. What I care about is social robots, robots you can talk to. The roles where robots are sort of most useful is jobs that are dangerous or dirty or dull. People call this sort of the three Ds of places where robots could actually make a difference in the workforce right now. I think it's just fundamentally wrong to say that a robot has emotions in the way that humans have emotions. Like it can't actually feel sad.
there's just a difference between what a human is when they're sad and what a robot is when it's acting sad. We like to have face-to-face -face conversations with people. We, we like to anthropomorphize pretty much everything. And if it helps with the conversation to believe that this robot, this thing you're interacting with is sad, if that helps you, to, you know, what I'm interested in doing is trying to put those robots into the world and implement behaviors on those robots and sort of get people to talk to them and, and sort of see how do people talk to them? How do they want to talk to them? What's, what works best for, for getting the conversation to go fluently when people are talking to these robots? Ultimately, there needs to be a human who is responsible somehow. If you, have, if you put an automated system in the world, there's no point in giving a robot rights. That's not even a coherent concept. I certainly don't see that robots are in any way like humans internally. I think that they, they have exterior behavior that's kind of human-like, but the, their innards is a whole lot of math. A word we haven't used yet, and a word that's almost never used in sort of the AI world is consciousness. If you program your idea of right and wrong into it, then it could implement that, or you give it some ideas about what's right and wrong. Understanding what it means to feel sad is sort of a human interpretation of certain sort of hormonal signals in our body. So I guess you could argue that, yes, the, the robot's version of sad is pretty much the same as a human's version of sad. I mean, there's something else that makes humans do the things humans do, and we haven't yet managed to build a human artificially that does things like a human. Putting things in the world without properly testing them on the people that, that could actually interact with them, that's, that's, that's a big problem right now. You don't want something to be making decisions that are not backed up by human judgment at some point. I don't think that autonomous weapons with no human input are a thing that should ever be out there in the world. The first thing we've got to talk about is sex robots, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, do we open with that or do we let people relax into the conversation and then hit it? <laughs> oh, I was just kidding. We, we don't have to start with it. But I do think she's a little nervous over that topic, you know. <laughs> right. OK. Well, well I think it was part of me because he brought up child sex dolls. I know, I know. Well, before we get there, before we get there, because let's make it fun when we bring it in. Let's quickly run an intro and go there, because I think we're going to enjoy this conversation. And we're back. So it's your same trio, Matthew, Andrew and Darren, talking about another session from the Christian Evidence Society. This time, the topic of the talk is very enticingly called, Will a Robot Steal My Job? What does that have to do with religion or Christianity at all? Well, you might be as intrigued by that question as we were, but we joined the conversation and we enjoyed it. Well, I certainly enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun listening to this conversation. Definitely got a lot more out of it than the previous conversation. So let's see what the other guys think. Darren, Andrew, did you enjoy it? I enjoyed it a lot more than the first one. I think partly it was because I just happened to like Mary better than I liked the last guy. She just seemed like a more down-to-earth person and a lot more knowledgeable about her field. Yes, I got that from her. I thought she was really engaging in the way that she talked about the topic. Clearly knows an awful lot. If I remember right, she's a professor in that field of study in a university in the UK. I think that's yeah. what I'll have to double check that and put a link in the show notes. She's actually, she actively does research as well. So. Yeah, and, and it showed in the way that she talked about the subject and she talked really passionately and was very honest about her feelings and her thoughts on the subject. I was struck by her level of humility 
all the way around. She did have a very engaging style, but what I mean by humility is she seems to approach the world epistemically very much like we would to say, hey, there's a, there's a lot of room for not knowing answers. I've got a lot of time for people who are experts in their field who also still say there's a lot of room for not having answers right now. So very much appreciated that. And I think we're also going to get into some things that, that were quite funny where we don't know the answers and maybe some places <laughs> where we do. Uh, but uh, but it, she, was a, she was a very, very engaging guest. And she would be someone clearly that it would be fun to, to sit down and, uh, you know, have a beer with and, uh, and kick these things around. So Chris Devitt's society did a good job bringing her on. Yeah, I would love to see her sit down with a uh, neuroscientist and actually talk AI with uh, between the two of them, because I think that would be a lot of fun just to watch. Yeah, I, yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think probably one of the way reasons why I warmed to her so much is I pretty much agreed with all of the points that she was making. And it was really nice hearing an expert talk about a subject that my only interest in is really consuming the information. This is not an area that I do any active research in at all, but it's something I'm interested in what happens. But my own ideas and my own thoughts were very broadly reflected in what she was saying. So it was comforting for me to have that. There was only one area where I disagreed with her position, and it was where she actually made the, the comment that this was her personal opinion. So she actually separated her personal opinion from what was coming out of her professional expertise. But I'll save that for a little bit later in the conversation. Did you guys have the same reaction? Or was there anything specifically that you disagreed with her on? Or were you like me mostly agreeing? I think I disagree with her a lot on her views about what AI can and can't do. Okay. Uh, but I think that makes sense because she, because she focuses mostly on embodied robots. And my guess is that the AI they do for the embodied robots is tons different than, say, the rope, the AI they do for, like, the Go Open AI or anything like that. Alpha AI, Alpha Go. Okay. I don't have a lot to add to that except to maybe say why I disagree with her. Darren, I, I, don't, I don't know whether you and I will agree here, but they talked a lot about goal-seeking. One of the questions that was asked somewhere in the middle of this thing, but really is the heart of my disagreement with Mary, is that if you had an artificial intelligence that you left to itself, uh, would it come up with a religion? That was my question, by the way. Oh, oh well, it was nicely asked. So yeah. I, I don't think, I mean, I think religion's a good question, but I, I think you could also ask, you know, would it come up with a moonshot? Or would it try to develop a cure of cancer? Or would it want to have offspring? Or, or whatever big question we might want to wonder if an eventual machine intelligence would ask. She had the idea that the answer to that was no. And I think that the way I understand artificial intelligence, the answer is very probably yes. Now, I think she was right to draw out that at the moment, we don't have machines that have, uh, I'll put this word in scare quotes, I'm sure we're going to talk about it. Machines don't have intentionality like humans do at the moment. So you can't just leave them in the same sense that you could leave a human to try to develop some set of goals and purposes of its own. 
But I think in the end, if if we get there with artificial intelligence, machines will do all sorts of things on their own, uh, maybe better than we do, some may be worse, but I don't see any fundamental barrier to artificial intelligence becoming goal-seeking over time and looking at the world around itself and coming up with its own goals. We Humans do this with game theory, and I think that game theory could very easily, or, or some expanded version of game theory, could very easily lead machines to do all kinds of things that humans do. Yeah, I think I would have to dig down into definitions before I could add too much to that, just because AI sort of does have goals. Uh, For example, like uh, AlphaGo, uh, its goal was to get more points than its opponent. Um, And it it actually created new ways to play the game that humans had never thought of before in order to achieve that goal. And religions are sort of, at least from what I can tell, are a sort of a set, a byproduct of different goals, mostly trying to get large groups of people moving in the same direction or thinking the same way. So I'm not sure why you would give a a computer that kind of goal to sort of move in the same direction, but I think if you did, religions probably aren't out of the realm of possibility for it at that point. Right, or or anything else. So part of the problem is imagining, at least in, in my view, Part of the problem is that it's hard to imagine at the moment a machine that grows up, right? So, so it's easy to imagine humans and other animals that grow up. We sort of see young people developing their own goals and ideas based on what they observe in the world around them. And so if we had a machine that was embodied somehow and it could wander around and sort of research the game board on its own, what sort of goals would it lay out? for itself. The way I understand artificial intelligence, the way I understand machine learning, being able to do that level of analysis, you know, if it could wander around and just observe the world, we're probably not there yet. But if we were there, could a machine develop its own goals based on observation? Well, the answer to that is absolutely yes. AlphaGo did it amazingly well. Now, the trouble is, it's only one kind of learning, right? It, it was this very goal-oriented learning, but I don't see any barrier to that expanding to general purpose learning over time. And so I'll, I'll leave the rest of that for when we get into a soul. But I just don't see learning in the way that humans do it being a barrier to artificial intelligence at the moment. I don't see why artificial intelligence can't learn to do the things that we learn to do. Exactly. I think the only thing that AI needs in order to achieve the same as humans is curiosity. It doesn't need intentionality to be able to do the things that we do. It just needs the curiosity of what environment it's in, because from that will follow the desire to learn, the desire to know how things work, what happens if I do this, and that will... that. So long as the curiosity remains, what it knows and what it desires to know will only increase. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. There's actually AI happening, AI research happening in New York. I want to say Marcus something. 
Gary Marcus, maybe, that's actually creating AI that um, starts out as a child and is learning as it goes along. I don't know how, I mean, this was something I heard about a while ago, and I don't know how far he's gotten with it, but it is something that people are working on. Cool. I think I did know that. But yeah, I think that's going to produce some very interesting learning for ourselves in terms of AI and how AI develops. It's just unfortunate that the the process is so time time consuming because you need, um, what, 15 years minimum probably for an adequate learning cycle? Not really, because you can, I mean, you would have to do that if, if the system was learning at the same speed we do. But when you can increase the clock speed on a virtual environment for the baby, you can yeah, do fi- so. 15 years in you know, a few months if you really wanted to. And with quantum well, computers coming up. Oh, sorry, finish, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, with quantum computers coming together fairly quickly, I think that even that's going to shorten it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of wondering, so quantum computers or there's some interesting new classical algorithms that are solving some quantum problems much more slowly, but even so faster than we've been able to solve them in the past. I kind of wonder what an artificial intelligence would learn not only from the world around it, um, but from everything that it was able to watch on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> because because it, it seems to me, uh, possibly, I'm, possibly I'm very wrong here, but one of the things that a machine intelligence might be able to do better than humans is learn from other people's mistakes. Now, I, that's sheer raw speculation on my part, as is all of the rest of this. We're just sort of skying to some degree. But if it's the case that machine intelligences could learn from other people's mistakes better than, um, let's say, human adolescents, as a, for instance, what would it learn from uh, watching World of Fail videos on YouTube, right? Or, or <laughs> what would it learn from war? There's a lot of material out there, and I think that Darren's right. Machines will process that information faster. So what would an artificial intelligence ultimately learn? I don't know. I think it would learn very quickly that humans were bad for the planet and that they needed to be eradicated. That's it. Just encourage Skynet to go do its thing. Well, so let me see if if you guys are willing to bite here, because one of the interesting questions that I thought they spent some time on that I wish there was more clarity over. I don't know if we can get any more clarity either. This is our question. They started this question with uh, self-driving cars. If I remember correctly, what what is the legal landscape for artificial intelligence? So right now, Tesla vehicles say um, if you're in self-driving mode, you're still responsible or whatever. Right. But as self-driving cars become more autonomous and people take their hands off the wheel more, where does the liability shift? Right. Does, Does the liability shift to Tesla? Does it still lie with the owner of the vehicle? What sort of liability is there? And in fact, I I asked a question that they didn't get to, I wish they would have. Is all machine learning liability in the future going to be civil penalty rather than criminal? If we make a machine intelligence, are we responsible? Or does the responsibility shift to the machine? What do you guys think? Well, Mary is position on this was that it would liability would hold to whoever was doing the programming because 
the machine couldn't do what it wasn't programmed to do. But she's not exactly accurate in that because the complex AI does things it wasn't programmed to do all the time. And I did see one video where a Tesla car got it, uh, was stopped by a police officer because I want to say it ran a stop line or something in a parking lot. And uh, so the police officer came over to pull it over. But the problem was there was no one actually in the car at the time. (laughs) The guy was doing a video doing their new uh, car call feature where the car unparks itself and then comes to you. Right. So when the uh, police officer pulled over the car, but when he went to the driver's side, there was no one there. So he had to call into the station to figure out what he was doing at that point. And apparently the law at this point hasn't caught up. So no one got a ticket because the car did it because the car was the one that did it. But the guy, the owner of the car wasn't actually in the car. They obviously didn't think trying to give Tesla a ticket was going to work. So, yeah, I mean, they, they still don't even have uh, a place to put the handcuffs. So, right. <laughs> so, so that's interesting. The, the question will ultimately be, when does artificial intelligence become self-governing intelligence? And how would we know? Is human intelligence even self-governing? Yeah, that's... Uh... I think most of my friends would say, in my case, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, one of the things that uh, she was assuming was that human intelligence wasn't determined where artificial intelligence was determined. So that was sort of a dividing line for her. But I mean, you're kind of right. If artificial intelligence and human intelligence end up being the same thing, determined or not, how would you know? Because you currently can't look at the neurons in the brain and determine that we're conscious just from the neurons. I know there are some ideas out there that you can get a certain amount of complex information and determine consciousness that way. Under those ideas, then the internet really should be conscious. But we have no way to really check that, so I don't know. I, I don't either. Is And if we had a machine that could pass the Turing test, for those who might not be aware, of, I suspect the whole audience is, but those who aren't aware, the, the Turing test was um, uh, Alan Turing is the is the guy that made this famous the the idea is if you had a machine that you could ask questions you you don't know what's a machine you don't know whether there's a machine or a human there's a veil separating you you can ask questions and in the end no matter how many questions you ask or what kinds of questions you ask i guess you can't tell whether the person behind the screen is human or 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 computer. If it is a computer, it has passed the Turing test, right? You, it's indistinguishable from humans. Uh, I wonder, in a sort of dystopian way, I guess, if we had a, a machine intelligence and it was indistinguishable from humanity, the only way we would admit that it should be self-governing is if we could cause it suffering. So you've done something wrong and now we can put you in computer jail. So I, I don't know what else do we have as a rule for accountability. I think this is where the legal system needs to catch up and it needs to catch up quickly. And she kind of took my line of thinking on this is where one area where I agreed with her strongly in that we need to limit the functional ability of these kinds of robots so that there is a legal framework in which they can adhere and that there is a human who is a backstop at some point with liability. We can't give robots autonomous freedom They need to have a human with liability at some point behind it 
then we need a clear definition of who that is. Yeah, I don't know. That kind of scares me. Of course, I'm not sure what scares me more. The uh, Congress that has almost no scientific understanding making laws about this kind of thing or then not making laws about this kind of thing. So, <laughs> Yes, quite. I'll tell you what, in, in this, one of the, one of the things I, I was most uh, disheartened by in the conversation, this happened early on for the, for the folks that, that may go and watch, her idea of what jobs robots would take because remember that's that's where we are right or robots going to take our jobs and and we've been sort of hitting around it with all of this but i was i was really disappointed in what she kept coming back to as as what humans would be good at right she kept coming back to oh well you know call centers humans are going to do call center things well robots are taking call center jobs big websites they have bots now that answer all kinds of questions. Before we go further, let me just ask you guys. I answered last week, are robots gonna take our jobs? Yes. Have you, did you either one of you uh, see the uh, Dubai Expo this last year, Robotic Expo? Right. A small part of it. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, they've got um, robots that will take the entire manufacturing, complete from management down to production. They've got nurse bots that are chairs that'll uh, take uh, patients uh, from their bed to wherever they need to go. They got baristas, uh, cook bots, uh, cleaning bots, uh, security bots, tire changing bots, strawberry picking bots. Uh, one company's working on a bot that'll pick apples. Uh, one of the Japanese um, news channels already has a robot that gives the news every once in a while. Deep fakes are getting good enough that uh, actors won't even be a thing because all they need is their image, not necessarily the actor themselves. Undersea robots for doing exploration. And cable uh, repair. I think they just used yeah. a robot to repair a transatlantic cable. Right. The idea that robots, that humans are going to look, I mean, there's robots that will diagnose uh, illnesses and uh, they can read x-rays better than humans and tell you what what illness you happen to have uh, better than doctors can and there's not a single i mean there's robots that'll write blog posts for you now there's shopping centers and like let's say norway or whatever where there's a lot of rural space where they just sort of it's just this box with stuff in it uh, you go in you take what you want you leave and the computer tracks what you take and um, charges your uh, credit card for you there's going to be a thousand of those opened up in japan here pretty soon and there's not a person in there the owner just has to go in once every other week or so to take uh, um, you know get stock and restock the shelves um, there's not an aspect of human society that's not being taken over by robots. Of course, she defines robots as not AI as being embodied, but if you extend that definition to include AI, then there's not a single aspect of human society that's not being taken over by robots. Even programming is going to be uh, taken over the next five years or so. You ain't taking my programming job, no way. <laughs> There's no self-respecting artificial intelligence with code in Visual Basic. Well, there is that true. No <laughs> robot can put in a bug in, with the style that I can put in a bug. I can tell you that's for certain. So yeah. here's, I asked this question and, and they didn't get around to it. It's one that I think is, uh, I think it's particularly important. So she talked about 
robots taking parts of people's jobs. I don't remember what the exact example was at the moment, so apologies to the listeners. Uh, seems like maybe they were talking about um, office work, and so there would be things that machines would do in the office um, that people do now that they wouldn't do when, when robots become proficient at it, but they would still keep other parts of their job. And I think it was well-defined. But I asked the question right then, if robots take over part of someone's job, should that person's wage remain the same? Well, it's, yes, because uh, probably, presumably, they're still working the same number of hours. They're just doing more of the other bit. Suppose the bit that they were doing was the more demanding bit. Maybe this robot does the particular number crunching part of accounting uh, and it does it better than the human. And so what the human does really is just meet and greet people in the lobby and sign them up for their computer accountant. It's not as skilled a job. Should they still make as much as they made if they were doing the number crunching? Good question. This is where market forces come into play. Yeah, yeah capitalism is definitely something she missed in her ideas about what would wouldn't happen, I think. And, and by the way, I don't have an answer because as far as I can tell, it doesn't matter what we should do. Uh, I don't even know that I know what we should do, but I don't see everywhere where we've implemented machines over humans. I haven't seen any places where wages are going up overall. Have you guys? Not really. I think we're going to have to rethink the whole wages thing here pretty quickly. Because I think we're either going to have to go through a, uni a universal basic income style or each person will hire or buy their own robot to do the work for them and then they'll get like paid vicariously through the robot. Or the whole mon monetary system will just collapse and people won't need it anymore. Um, Matthew, what do you think? I was just thinking about what Darren was saying about robots and helps and stuff when I <laughs> I was going through my, what if a robot is like a pension? You get a fresh one every time you change a job. Can you imagine the pain that you would have to go through retraining a robot to get to know your idiosyncrasies every time you change your job? <laughs> well, I'm guessing that's what the open source software on the net will be for. You'd have to um, download the robot's consciousness onto your speed drive and bring it to the next one and just hope to God that the two are compatible. <laughs> well, if not, you'll just take it to the robot programmer and they'll fix it for you. Yeah. This does, of course, bring up, we're talking about very close interactions with these machines. You know, will the machines get to know us? And, and what will we do when we move from machine to machine? There's, there's another level of machines getting to know us. They ran from it pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, say it. This is not a family-friendly yeah. show. See, I didn't think they really ran from it. <laughs> Okay, all right. All right. So we, she, we've she did embrace the subject pretty well. And, and I feel that she was prepared to talk a little bit about on it, but they did go very quickly to the ugly end of that conversation. So that's, that's, what I, that's why I thought they were running from it, though. Uh, okay, so let's, let's get into it. Let's quit video around the bush. Look, obviously what we're talking about here, uh, they started the conversation about companion robots with fluffy animals or something like that. And she was actually, uh, if you're watching the video, she was actually pantomiming, holding it and petting it. So I got, I got the sense that maybe she had seen 
a little companion robot. And she said that they use robots, uh, you know, in uh, pediatric settings right now and that sort of thing that quickly moved from companionship to sex robots. And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, now we're going to get into it, boy, because I think there's a, a reasonable set of questions that they really did duck. And OK, so go ahead. Let's you guys take a bite of the apple before before I go anywhere. Well, I thought it was funny that they didn't just go into sex robots. They went into child-shaped sex robots. Right. It has a child's face and it has a child's body. And I think think that's what made her nervous because, you know, sex robots, overall, I think she's in favor of, or at least she said she was. Uh, But I think it was jumping right into child sex bots that really made her nervous. And then he wanted to, to pursue that through like two or three questions, which I found funny. And there's of so course Catholic got, jokes going around, but right, <laughs> that that was that was quite good actually. So I wondered, I missed the part where she was in favor of it. So so my apologies. I I wish we had gotten down to. She was uh, in favor. Can we just clarify? She was in favor of the conversation, not of child sex robots. Yeah, well, right. Right. Thank you for that. I, I, well, I think she was in favor of the. Uh, socially acceptable uh, sex robots, not necessarily child sex robots. Right, right. And and so the conversation that I wish had developed, and this is where I felt, maybe she didn't run from it, but I certainly felt like he did, was what is a socially acceptable sex robot? So, so let me lay out some parameters that I wish they'd addressed. What about a sex worker robot? And and you can just uh, you know you can just walk up to the sex worker robot street corner and and uh, and hire the bot. So well, you don't own one yourself. Too autobiographical. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, why would you have to go to the street corner? Can't you just do an order on the future Amazon equivalents and it will come to your door, okay, come inside I- your door, and then. Go again. He's just stuck in the 80s. (laughs) So, okay, okay. So the the drone sex robot flies to your, you know, okay. So so the the robot, you you encounter it however you do, and there's whatever you want from the robot. You get, you know, get your your fetish on, whatever it is, and uh, and then the robot goes away. So that's one kind. So that's one end of the, of this, scale of interaction, but what about the person who uses the robot for more than occasional gratification? Is there any religious grounds for using a robot for gratification? Is it a sin to use a robot for self-gratification? And what about those people who replace their intimate relationships entirely with other people, with robots? What does that do to family relationships, to church and family? And I really felt like going to the the sort of obvious evil end of the spectrum or whatever was dodging the important religious questions. Not that people wanting to hurt children is unimportant. Don't misunderstand me. I think it's a deliberate dodge of the more fertile ground of what do Christians think in general about using robots at all for human gratification and if someone, for instance, uh, decided that they weren't going to get married, even though someone loved them because they were happy with their robot, what would they think? Well, I think that he was actually anti-sex robot just in general. 
uh, he didn't seem to, from what he was saying, I don't, he didn't seem to see the difference between the child sex robots and the adult women sex robots. But I would say that, I mean, because aren't there some religions like Judaism that, you know, spilling your seed at all is considered a sin? Yeah, yeah, that was so, uh, Odinism, if I remember the term. Yeah, so I'm guessing religions like that, they probably wouldn't care for the sexual robots. Um, as for societally, I think women are probably going to be a lot more okay with sex robots than anyone else because they, I mean, all the sex toys that I'm aware of, or at least the vast majority of them, are catered towards women anyway, so they're sort of used to using... Uh, machines to help them out. So I think the idea for women is a lot less um, new than it is for men. Matthew, would you use a sex robot? And what do you think about what Christians would actually think about? Because I really do think they died. Well, do you think he dodged here at all? And I don't know. I, I think they were probably more conscious about other people in the audience rather than themselves, to be honest. Mm. Uh, me personally I'm not enthusiastic about the idea of using a, a sex ro robot whether it looks like a child or a goat or my next door neighbor's hot wife I, I, I'm just not enthusiastic about having a robot there at all under any circumstances so on a personal level I can't see myself partaking of that part of electronics would you thought it was a sin as a Christian Oh, yeah, I grew up in a brand of Christianity where self-gratification was a sin. So mm -hmm. using anything that you're not married to is categorically a sin, end of. I grew up in that tradition too. And that will probably be surprised how many, sorry, we probably wouldn't be surprised what percentage of Christianity would consider it a, a big no-no. I would imagine it would be an enormous uh, section of, of Christendom, not just the, the fundamentalists or the young creationists. So I'm pretty certain it would extend well beyond uh, that arena of Christianity. But there are issues there to work out. They did bring up the point of you probably couldn't stop there being a black market of child robots that, that you could partake in, whether it was legal or, or socially acceptable or not it is likely to happen. And there's probably very little that we could stop it or just get driven underground if it was um, made illegal. And I agree that, that is probably what would happen. We need to find a framework. They would need to be a legal framework in which these kinds of things could do it. But on a personal level, I wouldn't use one on a more, more on a greater level. Do I consider it immoral for somebody else to use one? Well, if they want to, and if that's what they want, I'm not going to make a moral ruling on it. I am deeply, deeply uncomfortable if the representation that the robot takes is of a human or animal body that is incapable of giving consent, then I think there needs to be a line being drawn. So that basically rules out a representation that's under the legal age of a human and a representation that's a non-human because they're legally not capable of giving consent. Therefore, that probably needs to be the line at which you draw a robot analogue. I was just wondering if, because I don't actually know what the answer to this is, but if the research shows that human children are less likely to be assaulted if there's a child robot involved, does should we allow it at that point? Or do you think it should just be made illegal regardless? Glad you brought that up because back in... 
oh, I think this book was released in the 80s. Uh, I think it's the second book in the Gateway series by Frederick Pohl, also called the Heechee series, if anyone wants to um, find the first few chapters of each book and, and double check me. I just don't remember which book it is. In one of those books, there's a, a, a violent criminal who is a child rapist. And one of the things they do, is, first of all, he's, he's locked up away from, from human beings. But to prevent him from breaking out or to keep him from wanting to break out, they actually do give him a child sex robot. And there's some amount of description. It's been a long time since I've read it, so don't have the, the greatest recollection of all the details. But, but he does spend time trying to instill fear in this robot uh, and looks like a little girl and he breaks the thing. And so I think that's, you know, it's just a sci-fi story asking the question that you were asking there. I think I would have to say for myself, if a robot non-self-aware by the way so we're already on tricky on tricky grounds right but if a non-self-aware robot keeps a self-aware child from being harmed i think i would be okay with that yeah there's a pragmatic uh, truth to that which is hard to argue with the only objection i can come up with is making it public like that might make it more attractive and might increase the number of people who make use of that and that increased number might have a count might counteract the reduction because now you've got more a greater number of people wondering what it'd be like to actually have a real child but this is all hypothetical thinking this is sort of thing that would come out in the arguments over it yeah Yeah. i'm like i don't know what the answer is yeah i i can see the attractiveness behind the suggestion i i'm glad it won't be me who has to make the final decision yeah, well, I think it would have to be more than just someone making a decision. I think you'd actually have to do research and get hard numbers. Yeah. Because if you make the wrong decision on that, it could be tragic. So. Yes, there's a blunt practicality in solving a need there. You know, you have, to use another analogy, you have safe centres where people can take drugs in a safe environment, and there's medically mm. tra- trained people on site. So if something goes wrong, they can be looked after. And so as the end result, you get fewer people getting cross-contamination from used needles and fewer people dying from unhelpful uh, drug-administered incidents. Maybe the same could also be true of these centres. That's interesting. It, it might also be that if you ordered a robot that allowed you to mimic what would otherwise be criminal behavior, right? So if you ordered a, a child sex robot, there might be some way that that would follow you around. Of course, there's there's real danger there. I don't know. These are, these are very hard questions. Um, I'm glad I don't have to answer them too. Yeah, it's true. But then we can also draw the parallel that in first-person shooter gaming doesn't necessarily mean those people are going to end up as murderers. You know, we've got first-person race car driving games, and that doesn't automatically mean that people then drive like that on our roads. Right. So we have got this kind of thing that we can point to. It's just that this particular subject is all around the icky part of sex. Yeah. Got to have the numbers. I asked the question, uh, it eventually got read, is the difference between humans and robots eventually a soul? Uh, that was your question. I did wonder who, which one of you two might have asked that question. Yeah, it was, it was my, although to be fair to Darren, though, he asked a very 
similar question, if I recall. Did you did you not? Yeah, yeah, she ended up answering it. Yeah, so the soul thing, though, we should have been able to see that coming. And she said as much herself that the, the whole soul question was where she was trying to lead with some of her answers, because there was theme in some of the things that she was saying throughout. And this was where what she said seemed to take a little bit of a step away from her academic credentials and draw more towards personal opinion because she seemed to say humans are just different to robots we're different internally you know we're we're fundamentally different that phrase we're fundamentally different came out but there was very little meat if you're part of the pun around what that actually meant and then she came out and basically admitted it that she was edging towards this idea of a soul yeah she gave sort of an interesting answer to that she said it was an interesting way to put it but she wasn't it wasn't quite what she was thinking but that it was a good enough answer for i'm guessing a little bit of time she had left she was very much of a sort of yes but not quite type of thing between that question and the uh the one that i asked i was actually starting to wonder if she was anything more than just a cultural christian because there was an interesting question about made in the image of god if the if there was any correlation between that and the robots that she was creating being created in the image of humans. I thought her answer to that was actually fairly well thought out, even if it was a little vague, because she said that, you know, there's really no way to understand what it means to exist as a god. So she really had no way to tell if we were really made in the image of God or what that even meant or mm. Um, it was even a coherent concept. And then she used that to sort of say that, um, you know, humans and robots are so different on the inside that, you know, we don't really think the same way. So I sort of wonder if she's more culturally Christian than she is. Yeah. um, Actually a believing Christian. Yeah, but anyone who reads that, statement about made in the image of God and thinks about the human silhouette is completely missing the wider apologetics point there, I think. So to get back to the question of the soul, I, she really, she was really very vague about that as well. And so I'm not sure if she even, because I'm guessing as a, as a scientist, she really has to know what something means and what it is before she can give a definite answer of, yes, it's like that. So if she doesn't really have an understanding of what the soul is, then that would make sense of the answer she gave, I think. Yeah, the soul is a terribly poorly defined entity to, to the point where it's impossible to be even to be able to adequately test for its existence. So let's just take the point that it doesn't exist. Um, and while I get a point that there is a difference between the way humans appear to behave and the way a robot with AI appears to behave, but that simply could be we've had billions of years to evolve into what we are, whereas robot AI hasn't. So that was my problem with her answer. She didn't come out and say, as a scientist, I don't have any reason to think there's a soul. Maybe she is just a cultural Christian. So she didn't say, I can't be sure there's a soul. And the way she left it was the the way that that is least palatable to me in this kind of discussion. Well, I understand how machines work and, and the parts of machines that I don't understand, I know that some other human being does understand. 
but I don't understand how humans work. And I don't think anybody does understand how humans work. And that's where she seemed to leave the soul. So there may be a soul and and it's hidden somewhere over there behind that stuff that we don't understand. For me, the, the epistemically honest position is, okay, fine. If you think there's something we don't understand, then why would you think there's a soul there? The epistemically honest thing to say is, I just don't know if there's a soul. Yeah, and I think that's sort of what she was saying, because she was sort of fumbling around. So I think she was trying to, because, I mean, this is the Christian evidence society, and presumably most of her audience are Christians. So, I mean, I'm guessing she's not going to come out and actually say that, but she was fumbling around it quite a bit with that that answer and did a sort of a sort of yes, but not quite type response. So I think that's sort of, she was sort of getting at what you were doing. She was just not willing to say that in front of a bunch of Christians. That's so interesting because I, I think I heard it differently because of my former Christian background. And you don't, I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I may very well be. I heard that answer with some former Christian background. And what I thought she was saying was, yes, the, the difference between humans and machines probably is a soul. And the reason that we can't make a human being that, that does what human beings do is because the, the soul is the secret sauce that we can never get to. But I'm, I'm perfectly willing to accept that you're right on it. I'm not. Well, you very well could be right. I don't know. Uh, without actually asking her, I don't know that we'll ever know. Matthew, what did what did you take from it? Yeah, the, the soul thing was, was really woolly. I'd be quite happy to just switch out the word soul for the word consciousness it satisfies me much more mm. uh, and you're you're still carrying something that's not very easy to define but certainly it's easier to measure or at least um, try to grasp a hold of because there's something we can start with when you talk about consciousness and it's also something that humans have that's unique to robots but it is also something that we can actually, because we have a better idea of what it is, it's something that we could strive towards. So I'd rather just ditch soul altogether and just talk about consciousness instead. Maybe that's a good place to, to leave this off. What is consciousness? That's not the question I want to hear. I want to hear the question is, do we think that AI and robots will actually one day have a form of consciousness that is good enough for them to be human-like. I don't see why not. Uh, nature was able to do it, so I'm guessing humans will be able to do it eventually. Yeah, I'd take that. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of research right now in building electronic circuits that functionally behave like the circuitry in the brain. Certain architectures are good at certain kinds of problems, and there are other architectures that are good at other kinds of problems. And you think, Andrew, what are you talking about? Well, Classical computers are good at some kinds of problems. Quantum computers, classical computers aren't good at quantum problems. Quantum computers are. And it may be that whatever makes a human special in the sense that we're distinct, I don't mean special in some, some dualist sense, but the, the thing that makes us identifiable from machines or other animals may be down to 
the architecture of the brain. And I, I suspect that as we become more familiar with our own architecture and as we become better and better at replicating it, we will get closer and closer to what it means to be human. And that's where I'll leave my answer. I, Could you imagine having that job, though, trying to figure out consciousness? I mean, it'd be like trying to figure out the language of a computer, like an alien computer language that came, that uh, like the computer came down to Earth, and then trying to figure out what the assembly language on that computer was based on the architecture of the computer itself. That just seems yeah. like an insanely hard problem to figure out. It does, and the world does not want me to have that job, I assure you. We've made some interesting inroads because we're we're working on, uh, well, we've been working on neural networks for years. You know, now we've got competing networks that do things like make human faces. We've got quantum computers coming. There's there's a big question about whether there are quantum effects inside the human brain that survive long enough to be a part of what we think of as human consciousness. But we're making inroads on quantum computers. So there are a lot of technologies that are about to cross. I think we're on the edge of, of some really interesting answers. What do you guys think? I think as, as soon as the uh, uh, an applicable or usable quantum computer comes around, that uh, our ability to solve a lot of these questions is going to just speed up exponentially. Mm-hmm. Um, because instead of trying to figure out an, one, uh, one answer by trying each solution one at a time, we're going to be able to try all the solutions at once. And I think once quantum computers here, I think society will change so much, we won't even understand it anymore. Or at least technology will. I have no clue what that answers the question, but that's what I think so. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm just watching the time. So unless you guys got something dying to say, I'd like to jump on to the last question to talk about, which was my favourite question of the whole evening. Oh, let's. Right. And this was one where she was asked, is there anything that scares you about robotics? And the reason why this was my favourite question here was there was an unintentional moment of irony going on here because her answer was people putting unprepared things into the world. And my mind immediately went, did you read the first chapter of Genesis? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Oops. What What would it look like to put a prepared anything into the world? It, it, it sounds more hyper, but I, I don't mean this hyperbolically at all. Even our best engineered systems are not fully prepared for the world. It, it doesn't scare me that we are putting things into the world that are unprepared. And we live every day and we're not prepared for the next. We're surprised all the time. So I'm not I'm not scared of putting something unprepared into the world as long as what we mean by unprepared is that we don't know all of the possible outcomes. Now, if you're saying unprepared in the sense that there's something to be scared of, maybe but what are you going to do about it are you going to not take the next step whatever it is yeah the paperclip uh, analogy for ai sort of comes to mind when 
you talk about start talking about unintended consequences. You talking about Yudkowsky's paperclip making machine? Yeah, the one that decides the easiest way to make more paperclips is to chop up humans to help get raw materials for the paperclips. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I think I've heard that one. Yeah. So we don't. The the alternative is to what? To leave machines at the state that they're in. Right. So, you know, if you take the question seriously, so there's some concern about, you know, a singularity in the future. If we continue down this path that we're on, computers eventually become more intelligent than humans. And then what? Yeah, surely that's a concern. On the other hand, we would still be much further behind the eight ball with COVID-19 had it not been for the uh, Summit Supercomputer at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. We would not understand nearly so much about the world that we're in and have the healthcare system that we have, the ability to identify diseases in earlier and earlier stages. We wouldn't have a global communication system, so women's rights would be further behind than, even than they are now. We would, of course, maybe not be fighting misinformation campaigns as much as we are, but, but what is the alternative? How do you figure out when you shouldn't? introduce the next iteration that was better than the last. I don't have an answer for that. I'm uh, not. I? I won't live today being afraid of tomorrow's iteration. I will live today trying to understand tomorrow's iteration so that whatever it is, I can be prepared to create the best outcome I, I possibly can. Or live today trying to survive yesterday's iteration. Well, see, there you go. (laughs) You got me. Um, Yes, so there is that, right? I I am trying to survive yesterday's iteration because how do you determine what is misinformation and what is not in in today's society? You talked about deep fakes. Oh, yeah, that is so scary. I, I think that is a lot more scary than a potential Skynet. We live in a world where people are taken in by photos from movie sets being passed off as a false narrative for a war that is actually happening and using and take, being taken in by those photos and going, see, the whole war is a hoax. If people can be taken in by that, then I please keep those people away from deep fakes because they're just going to lower the global IQ by too much for us to cope with. Yeah, I sort of agree, although I would suggest that um, it doesn't even really take a picture. It just takes some idiot on the news lying to them. Yeah. Right. Well, on that pleasant note, (laughs) thank you both very much. This was a genuinely interesting uh, session. And I will put a link in the show notes because they did promise us that the video was already up for last week's one. So by the time you're listening to this, the video that we're talking about should already be up. So if you have any interest, dear listeners, in this subject, I highly recommend you go and watch it. I enjoyed it. My two friends enjoyed it. Go and enjoy it and see if you agree with uh, what we've said about it. Next week is the question of, are we here by accident? 
by a lady called Professor Dr. Barbara Drossel, and she is uh, affiliated with the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion. And people who have listened to Unbelievable listen to this podcast before have probably come across this institute. They exist to try to harmonise science and religion. So I predict that there'll be very familiar topics coming up in next week's episode. And I predict that the three of us will be quite indignant and uh, ranty about some of the things that are going to be said. So if that's the style of podcast that you like, get ready for the next episode. Until next time, stay reasonable. have been listening to a podcast from Reason Press. Do you have any thoughts on what you've just heard? Do you have a topic that you would like us to cover? Please send all feedback to reasonpress at gmail.com. You might even appear on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. To hear more of her music, see the links in our show notes.